Gamers Network, you are listening to Big Red Potion, the uh, the podcast that is uh, all ready to uh, deliver a Halloween fright. Uh, scaring us from the wings, we have uh, Joe Delia. Here I am. Jeffrey Matliff. Hey. And returning after some hiatus because you went on the original show that we did in October, it's uh, it's Zan. Hello there again. Hello. Uh, wonderful to have you back, Zan. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's, uh, I listened to the first shovel. It was bloody excellent. So it's, it's great to have the Big Red Potion mobile back up and running. Yes, we're, we're thrilled. It's, uh, I'm excited. Um, so especially as we've got uh, the Christmas, which is our most fun time at Big Red Potion. But that's getting ahead of myself. We've got another show to do. Before we get into that, very quickly, guys, I'd just like to know what you've been up to. Um, let's make this one a really gaming one. What, what games are you playing? Joe, let's start with you. Mike, I mean, do you have to ask me that question? Come on now. You know I've been playing the hell out of Batman Arkham City. <laughs> like, for real. Come on. Stop it. I've been playing Batman Arkham City like crazy. It's, it's yeah, I've been playing that. Uh, I beat the story. I've been playing all the side missions. There's just so many side missions in that game. It's possible to kind of get a grip on all of it, but it's it's, it's really cool. That's fantastic. I remember you were, you were huge on Arkham Asylum. My Is God, it, yes. In your estimation, I know, I know to shorten it to that, to abbreviate that is hard, but better? Good, worse. I, I, I like it better. I, I see what it did better and worse in some areas, but overall, I like it way better. Wonderful. That's that's exciting. I still haven't played it yet. I'm looking forward to probably getting to it after after the mad rush and Christmas. Um, okay. How about yourself, Jeff? Um, well, I also played Batman Arkham Arkham City. I like it, but I actually think I prefer the first one a little bit better. The open world kind of hurt it in some capacities, but that's a whole other topic. But yeah, I played that. I'm actually... That my go-to game in my spare time, whenever I, I have a moment, is I'm returning to Demon Souls after I really oh, no. liked Dark Souls, and I I was craving more of it, but it was too fresh in my memory, especially after watching Sinan 24-hour marathon that. <laughs> <laughs> so I I wanted something I couldn't remember as much, and man, Demon Souls is hard. <laughs> like everyone says that Dark Souls is harder, but. There's definitely some ways where, where Demon Souls is harder, especially because I'm I'm playing it in a different way than I did before. I'm playing it as a melee character, so it's like it still feels very fresh, and like I'm having a lot more fun with it than I am a lot of new games these days. So I, I'm with you. I, I think that they're hard in different ways, but that is definitely something we'll get into in, in the end of the year show because I'm going to be nominating a certain game. Um, hopefully. There'll be others, maybe. Maybe I'm hoping it gets into the top ten because I'm, I'm very fond of Dark Souls. Um, you know, there'll be, be at least one more. One more. One more nomination for that. Oh, good. Game. Yes. Okay. Oh shit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Right. That leaves Zan. How about yourself? Well, I'm keeping up with uh, all the latest games. So I've been playing Enslaved. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got Batman, but I've, I've not. I've not got around to playing it yet. It's kind of. I don't know. It's on the pile because I'm. I mean, I'm playing Enslaved for another podcast, the uh, Kane and Rince show. Yeah, that game's got issues. <laughs> I, I, I want to really love it, but I don't know. There's just so many little things in it that kind of niggle at me. But there's so many things in it that are great, but there's just so many things that just for me just don't work. The, the little orb collecting being the worst part of it. Hmm. I, I feel much the same way. I, I, I wanted to really like that game, but. There were things holding me back. A key thing for me was the story and the characters. Actually, I yeah. found the characters, in particular, um, Trip, yeah, just thoroughly unlikable. Yes, no, I'd go along with that. Yeah, I'm. I'm I think I'm on chapter eleven, so I've only got three chapters to go. But I'd, I'd agree. I've I've not found it particularly engaging, considering the last game um, from Ninja Theory, um, Heavenly Sword. I really loved, and I thought that had really strong characters. These seem to be, you know, when you look at the, lo- the rising talent behind it as well, it's kind of surprising, but. Yeah. I'm shocked it, that game's got as talked about as much as it has, honestly. Yeah. I like um, the game, but I, I think I feel as if, if the cinematics weren't as impressive as they were, I don't really know if people would still be kind of talking about that game. No. I, I think it's, it's a big push behind Ninja Fury as well as a developer. A lot yeah. of people yeah. seem to like them. Um, and whilst I liked Heavenly Sword, I, I don't quite see why there's a huge, a huge push around them, apart from maybe that they are trying to maybe raise the production values of games, but I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, 
Oh, very quickly for me then, and it segues beautifully in what we're going to talk about. I've been playing Bastion on OnLive. Ooh. Wow. Ah. <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, yeah. um, very briefly on Bastion. I I go with um, former, former guest of the show's uh, views, Brad Galloway. I think it's a little bit overrated. Um, I, I, I like it, but it seems to me like everyone gets crazy about the narration in that game and you know i think it is an interesting mechanic but the actual game when you strip that away the actual just you know torchlighty diablo-y mechanic-y game is a bit average and samey and i don't know not that interesting but i i, I love the visual style i love the narration but that's not enough but definitely we need to get on because we only got so, so much time and the important thing is i was playing it on online and i'll explain after this little bit of music why that's important back and the reason why it was important to playing uh, I've been playing Bastion on live is because on live is pretty much the would you say Zan the key example or maybe the most recent example of what we're talking about in this show? Um it's the most well it's the most recent extra yeah it's the most recent example and it's the most recent extra category. If I I can probably assist you by I'm just gonna run through the, I made a list earlier today of all the different ways in which you can buy and play video games. Okay, go so, for it. Go for it. So, free to play, retail box, digi- digital distribution, freemium, payment, downloadable content, season pass, in-app purchasing, game subscription, service subscription, episodic content, pre-order bonuses, limited editions, and premium editions. So, 20, <laughs> 20, 15, even 10 years ago, if you wanted to play a video game, you walked into a shop and you handed over some some paper money and you walked out the shop with a game under your arm. Today there seems to be increasingly you know I don't know there are 20 or 30 different ways in which you can purchase and play games ranging from freemium all the way through to packaged goods and then with OnLive you've got something which is now completely different where you can effectively just pay a single subscription kind of like Spotify and play whatever you want that's in their library. So, you know, a full catalogue of 130 games or whatever it is. Um, and uh, just looking at the games that we've seen in the last couple of years, I think that this kind of disparity in, uh, and fragmentation of, of how games are sold and how games are, um, how games are paid for is actually having a, fundamental, having a fundamental change on the way games are designed as well, even packaged good games. So... Um, yeah, that's that was kind of the the starting point really for for the show. That's a that's a fantastic starting point and brilliantly summarised, if I may say so. But um, yeah, uh, when you put it in that huge list, it's suddenly a bit staggering. So wow, and like you say, it, you know, as little as maybe well, I'd say before MMOs really, MMOs would be the first one where I can think that really added a new model to the way you you know buy games, being the the, the first to really introduce a subscription model that I can think of. I don't know if anyone thinks that's wrong but um you know so go back to the days of everquest i guess and ultima and then before then there was only one way to buy a game which was you go to a shop and you you hand over your money and now like you say there are so many different ways and um clearly they're having effects at least on the industry and and i think it's a it's a you know a logical assertion to say that it would be changing the way games are designed we'll certainly get into that Let's go further into online first because that is the most recent one, and it is interesting because um, you know if you remember all the back to when we first heard about online, it was going to be a subscription service. That was the idea that you know you'd pay a certain amount of money to have access to online itself, and now now it's changed slightly, where you've got the subscription package to to, to games, to pack to bundles of games. You can have. You, games and a sort of rental there are so many different models on that service alone and um is it i don't know what, what are your guys thoughts on on live um i know san you you've been very uh interested by the service um 
Yeah, it's, I've been kind of, well, prior to it coming out, um, because I kind of deal with this sort of networking technology at work, I, I was really cynical. I just didn't see how it would work properly, um, knowing the sort of, you know, latency effects and stuff that you get from, from uh, wide area networks. But after going to the presentation at Eurogamer, where the CEO came up and explained how it worked and, and then actually getting hold of the device and, and trying it at home, I was just blown away by how well it works. And it and they have actually fundamentally changed the way the games actually function to make it work. So it's not just the case of porting PC games, which is what they said originally. Um, they do actually have to um, recode elements of it to make it work over the, the the kind of the network. But it does do a really good job of of um, fooling you into thinking that you're playing on a console that's sat right in front of you. As for the the different purchasing models. Um, uh, I remember the guy at Eurogamer saying that basically they originally, like you said, they started out with a subscription model, but um, they found that people wanted to feel like they owned the content. Um, and I was sitting there thinking, well, actually, it's also a good way of you charging more for things as well. But they've actually found that the, one of the things that's been most popular has been rental. So this this ability to sort of pay a smaller amount and then just own the game for a couple of weeks. And then, of course, if you think of the subscription, it will then appear in that package um, after a few months. So I, I think it's a very interesting way of doing it. I think if you're someone who predominantly rents games rather than buys them and you're not too fussed about graphical quality, um, then I think OnLive starts to make a lot of sense. One of the big appeals to OnLive in, in any form of cloud gaming, um, there are others coming along as well, is that you it makes accessibility to games so much easier like renting games is kind of a pain in the ass these days. We don't have video stores around here anymore. Um, there's Gamefly, but you know the, the, you don't always get exactly what you want. You have to wait a little while, and it takes you know a week to ship something and get it back, or a few days, uh, depending where you live. But it's it's obviously not the most convenient thing. So like it, there really aren't that many options to just rent anymore. I guess we have a what's called Redbox here, which is probably probably the best thing to do it locally, but even that has kind of spotty selection and, you know, what you want might be out of stock. So I think that really that's sort of the big appeal. If you're going to buy a game, you know, it's not that hard to buy games, just, you know, any old way as long as you have a console. But um, I think that, like, when I first heard about online, that was the main thing, that the main appeal that it had to me. It's definitely true. I mean, um, one of the first things I did actually... Because I we uh, I got given three months free subscription um, through my broadband provider, and so I've got access to the hundred and I don't know how many games it is, and one hundred and nine games that are available in the in the main package that's available in the UK. And um, I was just running through them, and it's, there's a lot of fluff in there, as I'm sure Sinan will agree. But there's also some really good titles in there, and um, there's one that was on there that I would never buy because I know that I would only probably get about two hours worth of enjoyment out of it. But there was there was um, Hawks was available, so I fired that up and I I played it and had a lot of fun out of it for two hours, and I felt like I'd had my I don't know whatever it's going to be five ninety nine uh, monthly subscriptions worth just out of doing that. You know, it saved me uh, spending maybe twenty quid on a on a game that I'm not going to play very much and I've managed to sit down there and play it for a couple of hours without any real investment in time or effort uh, I just thought it was it really kind of opened my eyes to what the possibilities are in the future and um, I've said on the, uh, the 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 other podcast that I appear on on Gameburst that I get the I've got the feeling that what uh, OnLive are doing they're pioneers really in this technology but I can see this model working really well with any kind of future consoles that come out from from Microsoft or Sony, in that they can come up with some sort of hybrid where you have a semi-powerful media device under your TV, but where so much of the game content is actually in the cloud. Because the, the advantages of doing that are enormous. Well, I'm surprised up until this point there hasn't been digital rentals via Xbox and PlayStation 3, honestly. I mean, online is way ahead of the curve. Microsoft and Sony should have been on this a couple of years ago, and it's their mistake for not doing it. And like you were saying with, with Hawks, Zan, I mean, I think it's great that these games are available now to more people. Because if you think about, like, last generation, there were so many gems that kind of went under the radar, and the only way that people really picked them up was used or maybe rented it somewhere. In both cases, the companies that made that game never had any clue that these people were playing their game. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, through Hawks, they can get statistical data, and they can say, well, this game sold really poorly at retail, but in OnLive, through rentals, this kind of thing, we actually made pretty decent business on this game. 
Mm-hmm. So it might be worth revisiting at some point. You know, stuff like Jet Set Radio Future, for instance. A lot of people have played that game, but it's sold like crap, and that sucks. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, the great thing about online from a, uh, a publisher's point of view, is it is, it is a protected garden, it is a walled garden, so um, they can safely put their games out there and include them in these kind of budget packages, knowing full well that you know they are going to get a small fee for it, and like you said, they're, no, they're then going to know just how popular the game is. I'm sure there's all kinds of statistical data that OnLive are able to provide them. I think that the, the big appeal to, to cloud gaming is its accessibility. I saw David Perry at a at a press event, or excuse me, not a, it wasn't a press event, it was a, a conference on cloud gaming, and he's the, the CEO of Gaikai, and he, he, he was showing this funny video of one of their employees, um, their, their monitor rather, trying to install a, a free demo of WoW, and it took, I mean, you fast-forwarded through it, but it was basically like 60-something clicks and then, you know, 45 minutes of waiting for the program to download and it was all just agreeing to, to user agreements and, you know, install it, putting some hardware on your computer and the same thing went with Steam where if you want to, if you have a free demo just to install the program and get all that, um, it can take a very long time. And one of the benefits of cloud gaming is you can just select what game you want and it's just like, you know, one or two clicks away. You know, maybe there will be like a really quick user agreement or something, but right after that, you can instantly be playing the game. And as a result, it can reach a lot more people who wouldn't be spending you know, $300 on a console or you know, $60 on a game. From my perspective, I just wanted to kind of follow up on a, on a few points there. When you first, you, what you said, Jeff, about, you know, I think it was actually, sorry, it was you, Joe, saying that it's surprising this hadn't come to, you know, PS3, 360. I think the biggest surprise when you really think back and look at it is why weren't Valve doing this with Steam? And then you sort of think, well, they yeah. didn't need to um, because they were making enough, plenty enough money just by you know going coming in at a lower price, especially in recent years, and uh, really uh, pandering to PC gamers who were just happy to have such a, a strong service. But what's interesting about OnLive, and I, I'm not sure if this is just me, but I think there's something in the fact that this just you know it plugs into your television, and that makes it probably I would feel more appealing to to your typical console gamer who it has you know it comes with the the, the three sixty light controller it plugs into the television it's very simple to set up and when you look at it, it doesn't it doesn't come across like uh, a PC service even though a lot of these ports are while well, Sam says you know recoded they're essentially starting from the PC base mm-hmm. that's that's one thing that sort of interests me about it online the other thing as well is to get back on sort of way back, as I was saying, about the quality of games. I think the problem on life was itself faces when we get into the next generation, whenever we do, the quality of some of the bigger games. For example, I've been playing Deus Ex Human Revolution on it, and the visuals are just poor compared to what you'd see on a, on a 360 or PS3. Whereas Bastion, which is a downloadable game, uh, looks brilliant. I couldn't tell the difference between that and the 360 version. So it... it Clearly, there's something there. You know, with the bigger games, there are going to be discrepancies in the visuals. But I, I'm, I guess, a, a question from that: Do you think gamers, honestly, it's going to be the offer of, of a rental or a lower price compared to you know buying it for retail at PS3 or 360? Do you think gamers care if the visuals of that are a bit uh, less impressive? Well, the thing the clues in the title is video games, and uh, the video was, was certainly in my. As far as my memory goes, video games have always been driven by the shiny, shiny new and how it looks. Um, I think there's a certain there's a certain branch of of gaming, and there's a certain type of gamer that will look past that, and and we see that now with you know you listen to podcasts and you, you read stuff in the in the media, and there are those that will quite happily sit down and play a pretty mucky looking Wii game and and get maximum enjoyment out of it, and there are others that just won't go anywhere near it because you know they. They feel that the, the the visual quality and fidelity and the art style need to be being pushed forward uh, all the time. So I think that's where OnLive will struggle at the moment. But I think what you've got to remember with OnLive and with whatever comes next from the other consoles is that they're taking the long-term view on this. They're looking sort of five to ten years into the future when things like broadband speeds and fiber optic networks are going to become the norm. I mean, uh, we had an announcement in the UK today that 75% of UK households will have fiber optics, fiber optic connections um, within the next two and a half years. So 
it's the, it's a different proposition once you get those network speeds and those latencies down. Um, the the issues you see now with Deus Ex and stuff are really limited by uh, your you know the uh, current broadband speeds, but they will dramatically change over the next two three to five years, and that's when I, that's one of the reasons why I suspect that Microsoft and Sony will hold back before they make any announcements on a future device because they're they're waiting for the market penetration of super fast broadband to sort of reach uh, a reasonable amount, sort of forty percent of the population in their target countries. Speaking of that, Zan, I mean, the one great thing about the service is that, you know, when the new systems do come out, I mean, this thing, no upgrades are needed for OnLive. It's literally like, yeah, we have those games, except you don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay any money. You don't have to do anything else. You literally buy those next-gen games the exact same way you'd buy something from the previous gen, which is crazy. And they've been very clever with tablets as well. So uh, I played on a tablet at Eurogamer. They had a demo copy, uh, sorry, like a beta prototype running on an iPad and on a WebOS device, I think. And where that's very clever is, you know, providing you've got a sufficient uh, connectivity, you could be playing on your TV, you could then be playing in a cafe on Wi-Fi, you could then be playing on your laptop in a hotel room, you know, and you would be playing the same game and from the same save point without having to cart around anything with you. You know, it's uh, the potential is enormous. Um, I think the difficulty they have at the moment is it's very sort of technology-focused, and so to get a mass-market... Um, Penetration certainly in the UK, they've got some way to go. They're not, they don't have the kind of brand name that you know, uh, Nintendo or, or Microsoft or Sony have. But which is why I feel that the, these guys are going to be pioneers. And what will happen is that the others will either a bit like Apple do, you know, they'll they'll look at what they're doing, they'll say, yeah, we want some of that, and then they'll do something themselves, which will be probably even better. And then and then all of a sudden it will go mass market. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you guys are right essentially that there is it there's reason to be hopeful in the, in the online camp. I mean, you just have to look at some of the games that they are getting on the system to get Arkham City and to get um, Human Revolution and, and uh, uh, I think that's fairly impressive, to be honest. Um, there's big publishers involved, Ubisoft, THQ. So I mean, there's reason to be hopeful, but uh, similarly, like you say, the, the name needs a bit more awareness. But that gives a perfect uh, opportunity to segue to talk about Apple because, I mean... <laughs> On live, maybe now, but the big shift in the last few years has been Apple iOS freemium. In particular, <laughs> you, you've been itching, I guess, basically to talk about iOS on, on this podcast. Because it's something we'd never really do. And now I have an iPhone. Joe has an iPhone. Jeff has an iPhone. Do you have an iPhone, Jeff? Um, I have an iPod. And actually, my contract upgrade is oh. is over tomorrow. So like this week, I'm probably going to get the new there iPhone. Wonderful. So, you know, and then you have get a- one. Yeah. You have an iPhone and an iPad. I have an iPad as well, yeah. I actually use I, the iPad more for gaming, I must admit. Okay. Um, so you'll be you're 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 the guy who's miles ahead on all of this. Um you've been using the iOS to you know, use Mac iOS devices for years. Yeah. I mean you've seen the shift happening in, in front of you. Has it been it's, surprising to see to see freemium become so important and so uh, vibrant a, a way of, you know, delivering games? Yeah, it's um I mean, yeah, I, I've had a, I've had an iPhone since before they had an app store. So I've seen the whole the whole transition from having nothing through to having what they have now, and um, it was really interesting because, as you said, that there was very much originally the games that were available on 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 the, the app store were, you know, sort of two, three, four dollars, sometimes t- as much as ten dollars from EA, and then the price of the games has just gradually come down year after year. And to the point where, like as you said, you know the kind of free model took over. Yeah, I mean some of the statistics that I've I had a look at today, uh, they've come sort of in the last sort of five to six months. Uh, that the majority of revenue comes now from freemium games. Something sixty-five. And, yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah, the the, the thing I you know in doing a bit of research. Yeah, in-app purchases, which is you know where you basically buy extra levels or extra content, actually constitutes almost. A hundred percent more of the revenue than the actual original sales of the game. So, uh, a lot of they would, uh, there's some examples out there of the Epic game. I can't remember what it's called now. Infinity uh, Blade. Yeah, where where they they kind of switched to the in-app model and made a whole load more money by doing so. Yeah, and it's 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 crazy. I mean, for me, it's it's something I'm still getting used to. This idea of free-to-play gaming, and I've been very cynical of it for a long time. But clearly, um, on iOS, it it's there. It's, it's happened. It's, it's now the dominant model. I guess the the big question. A lot of you know 
a lot. I think probably all our listeners are iPhone gamers, but the and and it's the success on iOS devices is undoubted. But um, the bigger question is, what does this mean for you know 360, PS3, Steam? Um, that's I guess the more interesting aspect of it. I was just going to tell you a little anecdote. Um, there was a game that uh, came out a few months ago, Tiny Invaders, which you know, Sinan, because I think you reviewed it. I did, for GamePro. Um, and um, I, I was looking on, I mean, if you look at iTunes reviews, they're always hilarious anyway, but I was looking at the iTunes reviews for the game, and um, it also has in-app purchases. So you get a whole load of uh, levels with it, and I think if you want to, you can buy like additional you know, downloadable content, for want of a better word, or in-app purchases. Now the the price of the in app purchase was almost the same price as the game, so I think the the game's three quid and the extra levels are about the same price. The amount of people on when I looked at the the thread of comments that were slagging it off, saying, "How dare they charge us three pounds when we only get half a game?" and I thought to myself, "What an interesting way of looking at it." And then also on the same comments thread, there were people saying, "Well, you're not getting half a game; you're getting a full game, and then you can buy some more if you want." So it's almost that kind of glasses half empty, glasses half full perspective on things, where some people look at it as being a rip off that they're paying for something and only getting some of it, and other people are looking at it as if they're paying for something and then if they like it they can pay for some more. And it mm. it seemed to be almost fifty fifty as to which camp people were in, and I kind of looked at it and thought, well, if I like the game, it's going to cost me six quid, and if I don't like the game, it's going to cost me three pounds. So it's it's a very unusual situation we're in because it's so new it's and it's extremely divisive and you do have to kind of think to yourself sometimes am i is it really the developer only releasing half of their content or is it that they get a game out as soon as they can and then if it's successful they then add more to it to add to to give people more gameplay and and to make more money it's such a difficult thing to judge as a consumer mm. Um, I want to. I kind of want to throw that thought to Joe and Jeff. But before I do, I just want to kind of underline that that figure we were talking about with Infinity Blade, because uh, I think it was announced in June this year by uh, Epic Vice President Mark Rain that uh, the game had made ten million dollars from Infinity Blade after the Apple thirty percent cut. So that's already what thirteen, fourteen million, um, and that game was a starting price of six dollars, and must have made its in-app purchases. Uh, I think someone works out that the figure that they made from the purchases was four to seven million dollars. You know, some of the things that you could buy were thirty or forty dollars worth at one point. Um, to yeah. get the, the, I mean, that's that's crazy. Uh, Joe, Jeff, I mean, what does, when you see those kind of figures, what do you think? I, the other factor that I think is crazy, which wasn't mentioned in that article, but I've seen it elsewhere, is that uh, the six-dollar Infinity Blade made more money in less than a year than Shadow Complex on 360. A fifteen-dollar game has made in two years, and that's which, you know with Microsoft's huge push behind it. As yeah, well as huge budget, rave reviews, and in a console that's owned by fifty-plus million people, that is absolutely crazy. So, what, so, so clearly, that, that there's going to be consequences from this. What, what, what might they be? I mean, uh, Chair specifically has already stated one of the, the consequences of it. They said Shadow Complex 2 is completely designed, but they don't have time to work on it because they're currently working on Infinity Blade 2. And <laughs> I don't think that that's really... I don't think they're the only developer saying that. I mean, you know, I do think we'll, we'll lose some of our better console developers to these things because they just make so much more damn money and they're so much cheaper to produce, which not saying that's a bad thing because, you know, these games can be great. It's just a, a crazy shift in the marketplace. Yeah, I think David Braben was saying, I can't remember if it was in Edge or Games TM this month, he was saying that um, his studio, Frontier Developments, who did, you know, uh, Connectables, uh, I think half of their projects that they've got running at the moment are iOS uh, platform games or, or multi-platform, you know, mobile. Um, so there's definitely a shift towards that because that, at the moment that's where the money is, you know, and, and they, these studios will gravitate to where they can get the biggest sales and, and, and make the biggest return. And, I mean, that... that there's all these kind of interesting undertext, uh, subtext behind it, because obviously with the Tiny Invaders, the, the team behind that was Bizarre, who, or the former Bizarre team, who had these unsuccessful retail games Activision were pushing, and then they go and, and make Tiny Invaders, and <coughs> even with the problems they were having with the pricing, that, from what I understand, that game's been hugely successful for them, and made crazy money. So, and when you've got... I mean, I, I realise they were pushed into it, but when you've got the likes of Bizarre and Chair... 
now saying, well, we're going to focus on this type of, on, on this platform and this type of model. I guess question, the question is, Jeff, and I, I, I know this, I think from reading all of your articles or your covering of this, this conference that Dave Perry was at, talking out that this was kind of the, the, one of the themes. I mean, what, what does that mean for gaming as a whole and, and you know, the, the general normal model of buying a retail game? I mean, is that, is that going to go that far? Is it going to affect how we play the next Gears of War game, say, or the next, um, you know, Halo? Is, is that, could the ramifications go that far? I think so. I mean, we're already seeing um, stuff along those lines. Like with, with the new Batman game, there was all that controversy about the Catwoman DLC that you only had with the new game. And there are all these different pre-order bonuses scattered across different retail outlets. Um, it's not quite... And I, I think that actually... I, I, I'm not 100% positive on this, but I think that all the different pre-order bonuses you could buy or you will be able to buy later. Yes, that's right. Um, yeah, so um, granted that's still a $60 game. I, I was listening to the CEO of THQ discuss how um, they had a bold experiment where a couple years ago they released an ATV game at $40 with just a shitload of DLC for it. The, it wasn't successful, and um, they chalked that up to 40 still being too big, too big a barrier to entry. So I'd really love to see if, if some developer, you know, or publisher rather, would you know be risky enough to try doing that at like twenty dollars because you know forty forty still pretty big but um, it's funny because right after he mentioned you know why that failed he started talking about how the new Saints Row is going to have like a hundred pieces of DLC scattered over the cross across the next year and I'm just like okay but that's a sixty dollar game then <laughs> like why why don't you release it less if you're planning you know on going that strategy. And uh, you mentioned Gears of War three. That's a really good example because uh, on day one you could spend another forty quid, or you know, sixty dollars, I suppose, just on different coloured gun skins, um, right? Which could be bought individually or in a one massive pack. You know, it's that, that kind of the, the kind of freemium model that we've seen in sort of Facebook games and in some iOS games where. You know, you've got the game for free, and then if you want to enhance it, or if you want to take shortcuts, you know, classically something EA has done, um, or if you want to customise it in any way, then you pay additionally for it. That's starting to creep into major AAA retail releases. You know, full box, full price products. Um, so in theory, on day one, you could you could have spent uh, if you bought the special edition and then bought all of that content, you could have spent nearly, I don't know, 160 pounds, 200 dollars on Gears of War three, which is crazy. Yes, and with your collector's edition maybe as well, yeah. God knows how, how high the price would go. this month about Uncharted 3 will have its this season pass like thing for multiplayer season pass seems to be the, the big new thing or online passes um, do you think gamers are taking to that the console gamers or is it because I remember when EA I think it was EA or was it THQ I think it was EA first announced the idea of an online pass uh, that there was a lot of skepticism I remember myself writing a sort an article saying I don't think gamers will take to this but it seems to be the norm almost already in, in a year that you know, major games will have some form of uh, additional purchase that you you need to make if you want to if you want to play this content. And certainly, that was first uh, designed to prevent uh, used game sales purchases. But it seems to be more like you're saying, Zan, this kind of in-app purchase except yeah. with a retail game. I mean, is that going to are games going to take that, or is well, that a fad? Anecdotally, and this is only from you know speaking to. Uh, friends and fellow gamers and stuff. I was astonished when I found out who had actually purchased things like the season pass for Call of Duty and for FIFA. Uh, I know those are two big games anyway. They, you know, they're huge brands and they always sell really well. But um, virtually everyone I spoke to who had um, Call of Duty and played it online periodically had bought the season pass. And I sort of said, well, 
how do you know what you're getting? You're paying all this money up front for whatever it was, I don't know, three sets of content, but you've got no idea what sort of quality that content might be. It's to me, you know, as a as my the consumer inside of me just says no to that. You know, I, the idea of prepaying for something which I don't know what I'm going to get just seems to me a little bit crazy. I know we pre-order games all the time, but to pre-order something which is could be, you know, uh, a lot of uh, downloadable content has got varying quality. You know, you, sometimes you can get a really good set of maps. Other times you may just get a, a, a regurgitated map from a previous game. You just don't know what you're going to get. And it just surprised me how many people had paid for it. And the same with FIFA. The amount of people that that uh, play FIFA regularly that bought the season pass, just just incredible, considering what it gives you. Because I, for me, I don't think it gives you a great deal, but they obviously perceive value in that product. Um, well, that brings me to the concept of episodic games. Telltale's been doing that for a while, actually, where, um, like, Back to the Future, and I believe even Monkey Island, you, you had to buy a, you know, a $35 chunk or something all at once, you know, hoping that the later episodes will live up. And I don't know, just personally, I always wait for a season to be over and then kind of yeah. see what the word was and then I'll, you know, buy it all at once. But it's it's not really that new and it's it's not just a AAA games. Like, that's been happening for a while. And I don't know, I was curious to hear uh, your guys' thoughts on that. I bought all the Monkey Island games and the Back to the Future ones and even the Wallace and Grant ones. But I did the same, Jeff. I... I didn't buy the the season pass, although although um, if you work it out, you know it works out cheaper if you do it that way. You just don't know what you're getting. So but were you buying them as they came out? Yeah, or did you just wait basically. The end? Yeah, I just basically oh. bought the first one. I thought, well, if I like the first one, I'll get the rest. To me, it it makes more sense to me to do it that way it's because if I play the first one and I don't like it, I haven't wasted anywhere near as much money. Well, uh, I think that there's sort of a peace of mind though that comes with having. Uh, with you know, once it's already out of your hands, you don't have to contemplate every microtransaction, mm-hmm. and that's something that kind of worries me. If if we go to microtransactions, is like I feel like I'd rather pay more and just have something you know in my living room and not to worry about it anymore, rather than like, hmm, is this level worth three dollars or not? So basically, making every game a subscription service, which is of course what they kind of want at this point, and. I'm, I'm, what I was going to say is I'm eager to see that, you know, all the games they've picked to do season passes for so far have been kind of the big hits that, you know, are going to be huge. But, like, what happens with the next blur or something where they say, oh, yo, pay 30 bucks now, you get all the content we put out. Then the game doesn't do well, and they only put out two pieces of content. We haven't actually seen that yet, but it's going to happen at some point. And I'm eager to see where, if that's where the blowback begins of, hey, I paid for X number of content that I was promised, but, I mean, there's really no way to guarantee that, right? So... Do they refund the money? Do the people get pissed? Or do they have to come up with a whole new system to basically form subscriptions for DLC, which is kind of what they're trying to do? I think it's a great model. I think it's very interesting to see how people have been taking to it, which apparently people have been taking to it quite a bit for the Mortal Kombat and other ones that have done it so far. But I just think it's fascinating that, you know, understandably, WoW makes a lot of money off of subscriptions. These other companies are saying, yeah, we should get people to pay for six months' worth of stuff for this game up front. And hell, if Rock Band had done that five years ago, I would have jumped right on that train immediately. But I think it's just really cool that, and weird and, and, I don't know, a little bit scary that all these new ways to pay for games after they're out have been coming out so quickly. I think that's a, a very salient point about what it, what it will be for, I guess, the less bigger names. Because something we've, we've said on this show a number of times, you know, it's always underestimated how many people there are out there who will just buy the free big games, you know, the Call of Duty, the FIFA or the Madden, and then the Halo, right? And we always kind of forget that crowd because it's not us, you know, <laughs> we're the ones who will go and play Alpha Protocol or, or Blur or whatever as well. But um, those guys are, are going to be prepared to shell out more money because that's where the expenditure goes, you know, these free games and more cons of these games. Yeah, sure. They're the only games I buy each year. Um, so I don't know how much there is, like you say, in a, in a smaller game that wants to do it. Um, but it's interesting, you know, you mentioned WoW there and that's another whole aspect of this whole thing is the kind of strange thing, WoW being the, I guess the first game to really show how successful the subscription model can be. And now on MMOs, the new direction is free to play. I mean, uh, every article I read about the future of MMOs says, you know, we're going to see uh, a subscription model MMO by this year. I mean, what do you guys think of that? Um, I could offer <clears throat> probably a slightly interesting perspective on this because there have been parallels with my other 
hobby, which is uh, the board game industry. And um, you may, you'll probably recall, you know, that sort of five, ten years ago, collectible card games were all the rage. You know, it's particularly things like Magic the Gathering, and you could spend literally thousands and thousands of pounds on bring, buying every single revision and every single pack that came out for Magic the Gathering and all the hundreds of other different collectible card games that were out there. Collectible card games now are dead. Um, no one in their right mind will bring out a collectible card game because it will just fail on day one. Um, what people bring out now are big boxes full of hundreds of cards already in the box. So the kind of um, ball game industry has gone through this cycle already where they've gone from having a single package good to having this kind of freemium model where you just buy loads and loads and loads and loads of little microtransactional things uh, and then back to where they were originally but just something even bigger. And I think you're starting to see that now with the video game industry in that they've gone from packaged goods to subscription to freemium and then even on, on the uh, iOS app store you're starting to see now a slight sort of drive towards um i think i read in an article today they call it paymium where you pay more up front for something and you get a lot more content probably as much content as you'll ever need and then you can still buy the little bits and pieces on the top of that if you want and i i guess um from what i've been reading about the kind of mmo and as you said the, the kind of free-to-play model that this and certainly speaking to um our friend dits on Twitter today, he very much feels this is a transitional step. <clears throat> that um, free-to-play is working now, but the, the, this will then move on to some other some other sort of hybrid model. The Brad Galloway mentioned on the most recent Game Critics podcast um, to do with rage, and uh, I think this is something that um, I was concerned about really. Um, and I think Jeff mentioned it earlier that um, at the moment another way in which um, the, uh, the the kind of uh, particularly with AAA titles, they're looking to squeeze a bit more cash and a bit more value out of their product, is to bring out special editions. And we talk about pre-order bonuses, but there's also these limited and special editions. And uh, I know from experience, um, Deus Ex is, is one example and Rage is another, where the limited or the, or the, or the pre-order version or the, or the special edition, actually the content you got with it actually breaks the game. Or it either breaks the game, making it, ridiculously easy or allowing you to bypass large chunks of it in, and in some ways then breaks the game design or as in the case of Rage it gives you something which you really need to play that game and enjoy it but is, is removed if you haven't bought the limited edition and I think that's a really worrying trend because it's, you're starting to say now that there's, a, there's almost like a, a class division if you like in the games that you buy so if you buy the premium edition you're getting something which means you'll have a better game experience than if you buy the cheap and cheerful one which in itself is not cheap it's 60 you know it's 60 dollars it's 40 quid um and i think that's a worrying trend yeah i'm, I'm with you there i know when i um occasionally i'll get a game at GameStop just because you know they're close by and it's convenient and i'm too excited to wait for a game to ship to me or something and whenever i get a bonus dlc i usually never install it because i just i feel like it's cheating you know, unless unless it's just like an extra level or something. Um, although I, I listen to the same podcast you're talking about where Brad was uh, discussing the the door hacker in Deus Ex, and like mm-hmm. that's something that felt like it really should have been part of the game. Yeah, and it, it was uh, in the earlier one and felt very integral. You also got thirty thousand credits. You could actually buy any augment you wanted up front. You know, within about ten minutes of playing the game. And then really, with yeah, that, with huh. um. With Rage, with the Anarchy Edition, you get special armor, which you cannot get any other way, which at a certain point in the game, you've, it's a vital piece of equipment that you need to be able to get through a certain area. You can still do it, but it becomes a real grind. But if you've got the Anarchy Edition, you just walk, you just breeze straight through it. And he was, you know, he's, he's made that point twice now on both those games, and I just, it, it, is, it is a worrying trend. That, that problem's kind of been seen um, already in the MMO sphere, and for example, End of Nations, which earlier this year announced that it was going free-to-play, the, the developers behind the Petroglyph were very keen to state um, that their microtransactions in that game will be purely cosmetic. They'll be able to buy new liveries or um, different-looking units, but nothing will give anyone an advantage. If you're being really cynical, <laughs> uh, if you take a, a competitive 
uh, shooter, like you know, Modern Warfare Three or something. Uh, and let's say when you launch that game, you sell two different editions. In one edition, anyone who buys that game will have a distinct advantage when they play that game online over someone who buys the ordinary version. So, and you charge twenty dollars extra, or you know, fifteen quid extra for that game. If you are really into that game and you want to be able to compete on a level playing field, you've got no choice really than to buy the higher price version. Now I know people can vote with their feet and you know not buy the game in the first place, but in reality it doesn't work that way because if a, if it's a, if it's a game series or a brand that's, that's really strong, um, people will buy it anyway, and it will then, it creates this kind of class divide between those who've got the money to buy the special edition and those who maybe didn't buy it on day one or didn't have the money to buy the kind of restricted one. And it, it, that inherently to me feels wrong. Now I know you could argue that okay, you can you could do that with DLC as well. You could and plenty of games have done that where they brought out DLC that's basically broken the balance of the game. But it feels very wrong. It's it's one thing to do that as DLC three, six months after the game came out. It's another thing to do that from day one. And and I'm I'm not suggesting Modern Warfare three is doing that, but you get the impression with these last two examples that the temptation is always going to be there because if you offer someone a leg up in one version, then people competitive, people's competitive nature will always go for that one. The thing is, how do you how do you do it without people quite realizing? Because I feel like if you same for hypothetically Activision, and I wouldn't put it past them, came out and said that tomorrow that Modern Warfare Three will have this extradition. I think at this stage you would see. Gamers would, you know, talk with their feet and with their wallets, and you'd see the switch to Battlefield Three, which is already kind of happening slowly. Um, so I, I, I don't think there's one. I can't really think of of the big games one out there that there isn't another game waiting to pounce. You know, if if someone tried to introduce this, but it, at the same time, it, I, we've seen all kinds of things very sneakily introduced into in DLC already. Uh, just have to look at the, the examples you guys are talking about DSX and Batman and they, it, when you really strip it down to its to its core they are very dodgy things but people are buying them and uh, there's no huge outrage out there and there's no definitely no reduction in sales I mean Arkham City will sell millions uh, DSX will have sold millions so I can I, I, yeah, I think your fear is legitimate yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I've done it myself. I mean, I bought the augmented edition of Deus Ex because I wanted the shortcut. Because I, as soon as I found out that I could, you know, it would be a lot easier, and that I would be able to, uh, you know, some of these bits in it that were ridiculously difficult were solved by having the augmented edition. That was the one I bought, and that when I did it, I thought, well, that can't be right. But I feel absolutely compelled to to get that version. So yeah. just to close then, so because we've got about. I think five minutes really before we need to be tying up. And the 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 thing that and at your opening statement, Dan, which you really wanted to touch on was how does it affect game design? And I know we talked about some of the different sort of DLC related ways, but in terms of how a game is structured, you know, chapters, uh, missions, whatever. I mean, I don't know when when game designers are looking to the iOS model and, and iOS games and seeing the successes there and, and how you do, you know, uh, these premium games or freemium games. Um, what, what, what ways do you see that affecting the, the next Halo or the next um, the next Gears of War in terms of how we play it? I think how the, it's designed. The, the biggest thing is going to be, well, the most obvious thing is game length. So if you look at on the iOS platform, a lot of the freemium games or the the really cheap, and then followed by lots of in-app purchases, you you often only get maybe one or two hours of gameplay out of the free version. Um, and then you have to then pay if you want to play any more. Um, and again, I would argue you, we've seen a trend over the last couple of years for games to be designed to, particularly AAA titles, games are designed to to take around about 10 hours for the average player to, to get through them. And then if they have online content, there is a sufficient number of maps or tracks or whatever it happens to be to keep people occupied until they feel that there's an opportunity to then release more maps or more tracks. And um, I've just I've just noticed, I actually noticed it by going back to some really old games I've got. And in fact, one of the really good examples recently was, was Mario Galaxy, which is an enormous game, absolutely massive. And I just thought to myself, had this game been on a platform where DLC could have been sold, how much smaller would the game have been? How much of it would then have been sold to me after the game had come out? Uh, how much shorter would the development time of that game been? Because they are, 
you know, only producing the first ten hours of content. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's the the most obvious change. Um, but with uh, a lot of this other stuff, you know, like um, coloured guns and all this, you know, the colors, these are all starting to creep in as well. I mean, when you play Gears of War three online, the first thing that strikes you is the fact that. Um, there's all these opportunities for them to, for them to sell you things. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like a, a second marketplace of like different skins and different guns and different characters that you can buy and unlock. You know, it's it's you're no longer just playing online. You are looking to create your character and customize it and add. You know, all these things that we've seen in in Facebook games and MMOs are all starting to creep into uh, regular uh, packaged games. Absolutely. Um, before I throw that question to Joe and Jeff, I mean. Interesting there, you mentioned Mario Galaxy, because I think the one big thing we haven't really talked about, which I feel is a bit worrying for Nintendo, is what this all means for, you know, Project Cafe and 3DS in the future. Um, because I, I, Nintendo have been kind of a bit slow to embrace anything like this, uh, and I, I don't know what that means. We'll know more, obviously, when the console's release and, and when, when the 3DS is a bit more established. Although I know, Sam, you've been uh, championing how many sales it's had so far already. You could already say it's kind of established with 8 million sales, is it now? Worldwide? Yes, 8 million worldwide in, what, 6, six months? That's oh, pretty yes. good. And you were very keen to not say that, you know, to say that that's not a flop. Or to, to, to dismiss these notions of it being a flop, well, which I think is... it's not a flop, and I was also looking for these 8 million people who are suffering from migraines as well, which <laughs> seem to have magically disappeared. <laughs> Indeed. Um, Joe, Joe what, what do you, how do you see games changing? The, you know, the next uh, Call of Duty, how will that be because of what we're seeing on iOS? Yeah, I think everyone has to adapt. I mean, I, I think that, you know, if Call of Duty doesn't adapt, if, if every big game doesn't adapt, I mean, they're not going to see the sales that they're seeing. They're not going to see the revenue that they're going to see post-game sale that they should be seeing. And I think everyone's quickly going to realize this model is actually going to make them a whole lot of money. And I think and the one thing we are definitely going to see a lot more of is if you look at the burnout crash model, what they did, mm-hmm. where they put this game out on XBLA and PSN, and you know they, they gave it quite a bit of fanfare, uh, let it out there for about a month, and then they're like, oh, by the way, this thing's also coming to iOS. It'll be out in a week. And it's like, you know, three, four bucks or whatever it would end up being. But I think that's going to happen a lot more. I think games are going to, you know, definitely hit the home consoles first, but they're kind of going to be designed for both. And in that case, I mean, the game apparently wasn't that great, but I guess it controlled well on all platforms, so that that worked out okay. But I have a feeling we're going to see a lot of odd choices as far as, you know, digital game development uh, goes in the next couple of months, just so that they accommodate pretty much every platform out there, Um, which, yeah, right decision, sure, but... We'll see how that does changes the games that we're playing. Yeah, indeed. Um, I'm going to throw you a slight curveball, Jeff, to end on. Because um, I think it... I, I don't know whether I'm making an assumption with this about Nintendo. Do you, do you think Nintendo have something to, to worry about in the future with how we're seeing the market change? Hmm. That is a curveball. Um, <laughs> it is a bit of a curveball. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. Personally, you know, discussing all these changes... You know, in general, I'm not a big DLC person. I feel like once I've played through a $60 game and, you know, spent a week or so with it, um, by the time the DLC comes out, like, three months later, I've kind of moved on. It's very rare that I that I go back and do that. So I kind of like having my, my really self-contained experiences and, you know, just playing one game at a time. So, like, this... So, like, I don't know, DLC doesn't really appeal to me that much, and I think that a lot of Nintendo's audience is sort of that same way. Um, but, you know, because they're so bad with online stuff, I don't think, you know, they barely promote WiiWare at all. I think a lot of their audience just isn't aware of it. Um, at the same time, they could be losing a huge potential audience for people who are, you know, savvy with that sort of thing. To be fair, Jeff, I'm sure a lot of people that own a Nintendo console also have an iPhone. And I think the reaction to that fake story about a month or two ago about there being a Pokemon app for iOS, I think the reaction to that shows that, man, Nintendo was losing a hell of a lot of money by not putting something out. Yeah. Yeah, but at the same time, I think I agree with what you're saying, Jeff, to an extent. I feel like, you know, um, without being too cynical about it, uh, all Project Cafe really needs is a Mario game and a Zelda game. And, I mean, I'm glad you know, that you're Mario's not. The way to the bank. Like, I'm really uh, glad that Mario isn't 10 hours long with DLC packs that come out later. Because, you know, like, I, I gorged on that game for a week, and it, and it was fantastic. And, like, yeah, if they released DLC, I would play it. But, I don't know, I just feel like it feels... 
I, I don't want to come off as like too cynical because there is some really good DLC and very good reasons why it's it's made after the fact, but a lot of the time it does feel like a little insulting when you get parts of the game kind of piecemeal like that. Before we go, guys, um, I'm going to very, very briefly plug you all because I know that uh, you're all doing loads of stuff. Or um, I'll do Joe because Joe's easiest. Joe, you're on Twitter. Yes. Occasionally, yes. Sometimes um, at Slam Huge, and uh, when you are there, you are most entertaining. But you need to be on there more. I do. I'm sorry. I just got a new phone, so hopefully that'll keep you on there more. Cool. But you'll be joining. You'll. We've got something interesting planned for December on, on, on your side of things. Yes, absolutely. This should be either a huge disaster or a slightly less huge disaster. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's encouraging. Um, but yes, so Joe fans, look out for December. Um, Zan, I think you might be on every podcast I listen to. Um, um, Kane and Rents, you're, you're going to appear... You've got a column there. Oh, right? Well, uh, right, okay. Let's so, go for all these. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I have, I have a regular monthly show on Game Burst, but I also occasionally appear on their round tables, which is basically a very short version of, of kind of what you do here. We talk about topic of the week, really, with something that's come up during that week. Uh, and we just uh, briefly discuss... Um, yeah, I, I'm uh, going to be on Kane and Rince, which is a fantastic new podcast if you've not heard it before. So it's, uh, it's Kane with a C, kaneandrince.com, uh, all fully spelled out. Um, and they go really into a lot of detail on a single game. Um, they recently did one on Ico and Shadow of the Colossus, the HD remake, which was fascinating. Um, really, really good. Um, so yeah, I'm going to be on that one when they're looking at a couple of Ninja Theory titles. And then... Finally, yeah, I, I'm doing a, an occasional column for Digital Gonzo, which is called Citizen Game, which is about basically consumer rights, uh, which is uh, something which I'm quite passionate about. Fantastic. And we should say for, for listeners who have been with, with us a while, um, Ken and Rince is kind of headed by two of the former guests and uh, a few other people as well. But our listeners will remember Tony Atkins from Digital Cowboys. And uh, and Leon Cox from Game of Dog, who both left their podcasts to to form Kane and Rince, uh, along with a couple of other people, and I think they they're amassing a small army there, really, actually, of uh, writers and podcasters. And you can uh, and Lysanthus has been a very very strong start, which you can listen to and read and all other kinds of stuff at kaneandrince.com. Jeff, you are ever busy. Uh, um, doing reviews for G4 and writing all over the web. Um, anything recent that we can point to? Um, I, I sunk that recent. I reviewed a Dark Souls at G4, and I was kind of proud of that one. Personally, I love that game a lot, and was really passionate with that review. Um, oddly enough, I it was probably the best game I've ever reviewed, and then I followed it with the worst game that I ever reviewed, <laughs> uh, which was A Cursed Crusade, which I also reviewed for G4. Um, what was your pros yeah. for that again? Because you only had one pro. Oh yeah, my pro was that you could ki- you could skip cutscenes. <laughs> it's the only nice thing I can think to say. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, yes, Kirsten said, I've actually seen adverts of that floating around London. I never heard of it until in your review. Um, I won't be picking it up. Um, but yes, and you're on Twitter too. You're both on Twitter. Twitter.com slash Zantirad for Zan and Mr. Duran Pierre for Jeff. Um, very briefly, because we're kind of overrunning. Is there anything apart from Ken Rins for Zan and, and uh, Jeff Curse Crusade that you'd like to recommend to our listeners? Um, Zan, how about you first? Well, uh, again, I'll always recommend the Game Critics podcast, which at the moment is my, probably my favourite US-based show. I think it's fantastic. I know a lot of people think they're a bunch of old cynics, but um, that kind of appeals to me. Being can, a, I just, can I just say to follow up? I think I think Tim Spaeth, if he doesn't get a career in radio, I don't. He's know. so <laughs> good. He's so good. Yeah, and of course Felipe. We have to credit him as well. Oh yes, Felipe is the, is the power behind <laughs> the, the throne. Um, yes, Kingcritics.com. Uh, 
Brad Galloway, uh, former guest, uh, is a big part of that. And uh, Game Critics fans, you'll be enjoying December too. Hopefully. Hopefully. I might have to edit that out in the first entry. But hopefully. Um, Jeff, have yourself. Um, pretty much what I already said, you know, I write at you know, GamePro and Eurogamer and MacLife, all the usual places. Um, yeah, I'll also recommend Game Critics. It's a great show. Friends with the guys there. They're all fantastic. It's a triple recommendation. Um, what will I recommend? I recommend for cynics who've not given it a go, try it on live. Because um, I've been... I've had my sort of fears not quite cancelled out or, met, or you know... Um, I guess the word is, is diminished or whatever, but um, I think it's more impressive than a lot of people thought it was going to be, and um, it'd be interesting to see how that turns out, so on live.com, um, all you need is the console, and internet connection, would you call it a console? I don't even know. They, call, call, it, they call it a micro console, don't they? But a micro console? It's, okay, it's a, a tiny little box, isn't it's it? A US, <laughs> it's a USB port, basically. Yeah. Um, We've, and, and yeah, all you need is, is an internet connection, a television, and a box. And you can get the box at onlive.com. Um, that's it for us. We'll be back in December with hopefully uh, two shows, including our end of the year show, where we will be choosing our 2011 game of the year. And I think if last year was unpredictable, I've, I've got no idea. I couldn't, I couldn't even tell you what's a contender because um, it's been all those years where every game has seemed to provoke really uh, a mix of opinions and, um, and no doubt that's what you have to look forward to in our end of the show until then bye for now